Today I want to talk to you, and we've got a lot of scripture to go over, and uh, we're going to talk about Psalm 46. Psalm 46. So let's jump right in so that I'll be done in probably two, two and a half hours, so it'll be fine, it'll be fine. Psalm 46, and I want to read the, uh, the little piece that is above the psalm, but it's the part of the original scripture, and, and we'll talk a little bit about that. But it says, for the choir director, a psalm of the sons of Korah set to Alamoth, which means the high-pitched song, a song. Psalm 46, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride. Selah. There is a, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved. God will help her when the morning dawns. The nations made an uproar. The kingdoms tottered. He raised his voice and the earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Selah. Come behold the works of the Lord, who has wrought desolations in the earth. He makes the wars to cease the end, to the end of the earth. He breaks the, the bow, cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariots with fire. Cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Selah. Many Bible scholars tell us that this psalm was written during the reign of King Jehoshaphat when Israel's enemies, they were Moab, Ammon, and Edom, came against the people of God. God arose as their strength and helped with supernatural intervention in a time of trouble. You can find that story in 2 Chronicles, chapter, chapter 20, but and we're going to talk a little bit more on that later. The wording of this psalm inspired Martin Luther to write the hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, that was written in the year 1529. I was like in high school at that time. So. <laughs> if you have ever read this psalm and picture a calm, serene setting, and you may want to go back and read it again. The context is completely different. This, uh, the, the psalm is actually a, a meditation of a, of a psalmist who knows that trouble is inevitable. Do you know that trouble is inevitable? This psalmist knew it, but he also knew that God was faithful. He will not leave him helpless, and he will not leave us helpless. We see a setting of what seems like a natural disaster, uncertainty, war, just all around trouble. The psalmist focuses on the peace that comes from being in the presence of God. Even though the earth around him threatens to fall apart, God's a very present help. 
The psalm holds even more power in the correct context. The background story of the writer, or writers, I should say, of this psalm, the sons of Korah, is a testimony to what God can do. These men were descendants of a Levite priest named Korah. One of the great stories in Old Testament scripture is the story of the rebellion of Korah. Korah was a wealthy man from an influential family. He was a cousin of Moses and Aaron. He was also a descendant of Levi, so he was a priest. He did service in the tabernacle of God. He was a prideful man, jealous man, and he challenged Moses' choice to appoint Aaron as the high priest. Now, I'm telling you all this because it means something. So we're going so keep in mind, we're going to go back to Psalm 46. Numbers chapter 16 tells us the story of Korah and six of his rebel friends. And in that rebe- rebellion, they gathered a group of 250 men to challenge Moses and Aaron. You see, Korah believed that he should be the high priest. Korah was a priest who served already a priest, but not the high priest, who served in the, in the tabernacle of the Lord, but he wanted to be the high priest. But that wasn't God's plan. God was the one who was instructing Moses in all of the affairs of Israel. Korah's jealous pride was what was driving him. Moses actually tried to reason with Korah and his band of, band of rebels. Listen to the words of Moses to Korah and his companions, and this is in Numbers 16, 8 through, 8 through 11, and that's going to be up on the screen. Then Moses said to Korah, Hear now, you sons of Levi, is it not enough for you that the God of Israel has separated you from the rest of the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself, to do the service of the tabernacle of the Lord, and to stand before the congregation to minister to them? And that he has brought you near, Korah, and all your brothers, sons of Levi, with you? And are you also seeking for the priesthood also? Therefore, you and all your company are gathered together against the Lord. But as for Aaron, who is he that you would grumble against him? So Moses called Korah and his companions out on the rebel plan that they had in mind. But they had no interest, no interest in following the commands of God. Moses tried again. He tried again to reason with them. I encourage you to go and read this entire story. It's fascinating. He tried again to reason with them. There were two men that were with, that, that were with Korah, Dathan and Abiram. He called for them and tried to reason with them about going against God. They, did, they refused to even talk to him. Moses was angry. But he, but he didn't do what a lot of people do when they were angry. Moses cried out to the Lord. He cried out to the Lord about the circumstances. Moses told Korah and his entire, his entire company to meet the following day at the tent of meeting to submit an offering of incense to the Lord. So as the story goes, the next day rolls around and they all met. Moses, Aaron, all the elders of Israel, and the entire congregation along with Korah and all of his rebellious friends. God spoke to Moses. Now, this is, this is tough. I, 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 this will uh, make you think twice about going against what 
God's plans are. God spoke to Moses at the time of this meeting and said, tell all the people to get away from Korah and all of his followers and don't even touch anything that belongs to them. After that, the ground opened up and literally swallowed up Korah and all of these rebels that were close to him and buried them alive. This was the judgment of God against those who refused to follow the plan of the Lord. Now, jump ahead 400 years, 400 years, about 13 or 14 generations later. These sons of Korah, descendants of the original Korah who rebelled against God, these are the guys that wrote this psalm that we just read. These are the men credited with writing Psalm 46. In addition, one of the most remarkable things about these guys is that during the time of King David, they became great worship leaders. They, be, they, were the, they handled all of the orchestral music and choral and all of the worship that was going on at the time, the sons of Korah, and they wrote many psalms. Scholars tell us that it is believed that these men wrote this psalm after witnessing the deliverance of God during the reign of King Jeho Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah. How can we be certain of this, of this background? We're going to go into that in a, a little bit more detail in just a few minutes. These sons of Korah were able to do something that not a lot of people are able to do. They, he, they got beyond a tragic family history, a tragic situation that happens with their ancestors. And they ended up following God and serving God and, and being instrumental in all of the things that God was doing. They chose to follow God and live by his laws. So let's just start at verse 1 of the psalm again. We're going to go th through, through this. Psalm, psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Many of the other psalms begin with a description of the psalmist crisis. In this psalm, the writer begins with what God has done about it, with what God provides. He looked to God for help in difficult times, and he found it. He could say that by experience, that God alone was his refuge, and, and God alone was his strength. Not God and something or someone else, God alone. That God himself was their help, not from a distance, but a very present help. David, David tells us in Psalm 145, verse 18, he says that the Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. So back to Psalm 46, verse 2. Therefore, therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea. That's a, that's a strong statement. If you believe that God is a refuge and strength, and you say, therefore, we will not fear. Have you ever just been able to will yourself to not fear? I've not. But if you know that God is a refuge and strength, you can say, therefore, we will not fear. The psalmist applied the logic of faith. You say, Barney, that, how does that work? The logic of faith. This implies that if we believe that God is our refuge and strength and a very present help in the time of trouble, that realization should have an effect on how we deal with fear. 
Is that right? Is that, is that right? We apply the logic of faith. You know, faith is a logical thing. Our God is real. He's real. If God is a real refuge and strength and help to his people, then there's no, now, now hear me, there's no logical reason to fear, even in the worst of, of a crisis, though the earth would be removed. When we feel like everything is uncertain, when the mountains just might as well crash into the sea, the first thing we do is remember that our peace is not in better circumstances. Our peace is not in avoiding the problems or in anything on this earth. Instead, our protection and our peace is in the everlasting Word of God, the very present help of the Holy Spirit that John talked about this, mor this morning. Thank you, John. You did a great job. And the, and the work of Christ on our behalf. Our protection and our peace rest in those things. Verse number three. Though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride. Selah. So the psalmist is, is describing the roaring, foaming waters of the sea. Now we have noted, and we've talked about this before, that the ancient Hebrews had a, had a deep fear of water and of deep water. Uh, we, we, we see not only in Scripture but in uh, poetry that the sea has been a symbol of endless unrest and chaos. And the Hebrews, did, they, they thought that the sea could hold all kinds of evil. Its powerful waters seemed to them to be an example of unbridled power, something that only God could control. So you remember the story, Jesus walking on the water, when he had calmed the waters and the disciples worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. They realized something. Ancient Hebrews would have known God controls these waters, only God, only God. They knew that that, that, that 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 was the only thing that could control the powerful waters. Then the story of uh, whenever Jesus was asleep in the boat and the storm came up and the disciples said, Lord, don't you care? We're going to drown. We're all going to drown here. We're going to die. Jesus gets up. He rebuked the wind and the raging water and the storm subsided and all was calm. The story in Luke 8 says that, that in fear, and amazement, they ask one another. Now, this wasn't their first day of ever meeting Jesus. They ask one another, who is this? He commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. They knew something. They knew that only God could command the wind and the water. In the context of destructive water, the last thing that someone who needs a refuge would want to hear about is more water. But that's where the psalmist goes. Look at verse 4. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the Most High. A river? More water? This water is different. This water is a stark contrast to the raging sea that was described in verse number 3. But this contra contrast is not just a literary manipulation for the sake of making a point. This is God's answer 
to the raging sea. You see, he controls, he can calm raging seas. Our fears should be nothing to him. This river makes glad the city of God. The roaring, raging waters wouldn't have made anybody glad. It was a terrifying thought, but this river is different. Have you ever thought about, so I, well, I liked these geek out moments for, for, for just a second, so all you geeks, all the, all the rest of you could take a mental break. Uh, have you ever considered the significance of rivers? Not just in general. Say, Barney, they're just water. All right, I got it. But also in the scripture, God uses rivers. They are his handiwork. They're a vital part of the earth's ecosystem. Yeah, they are. <laughs> Y'all are looking at me like, where is he going with this? <clears throat> Channels of water flowing downward from elevations, twisting and turning, carrying their currents perpetually toward a lake or a sea or an ocean. Rivers are part of the earth's watering system. That snow that you just saw, that came from rivers. It, the water has evaporated up into the sky and it comes back down as rain and snow. Now there's your science lesson for the day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're welcome. Now, all of these physical features of a river are important, but God has a much deeper meaning as it relates to rivers. In Genesis 2, we're told that a river, and this is not going to be up on the screen, that a river watering the garden flowed in the east of Eden, and there it separated into four, four branches. And also in Revelation 22, we're told that a river of water like crystal will flow through the new Jerusalem. Jesus himself began his ministry standing in a river, standing in the middle of the Jordan, being, being baptized as the Holy Spirit descend, descended on him like a dove. The river of life in Revelation represents God's life-giving presence. God never leaves us. He's always with us. Do you know that? So we're not surprised when the psalmist talks about the river, the streams of which make glad the city of God. The reference in Psalm, in Psalm 46 has got layers of meaning. We're only going to get to the first one or two. Ancient Hebrews knew that Jerusalem was commonly called the city of God, also known as Zion and later the city of David. Uh, in addition, Hebrews believed that God's dwelling place was in his tabernacle. That was in Jerusalem, the dwelling places of the Most High. The problem with this being in Jerusalem is there's no river there. There's no river there. As a matter of fact, the closest river is about 20 miles away. Jerusalem is fed by an underground stream of water. So, here, so how are we to understand what the psalmist is referring to? What is that city, that river in the city that makes glad the, the city of God? The psalmist has just talked about God being a refuge and a strength to his people, a very present help. He is with them, present with them. The rest of Psalm 46 and, and verse 5 says much the same thing. God, the Most High, makes his dwelling place holy. Do you know that you are the dwelling place of God? He, he should, you should be holy. He makes his people his dwelling place. God is with his people. Look at verse 5. Let's go to verse 5. 
God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. God chose Jerusalem to be where the temple would be built. Isaiah 54.10 speaks about that, that, about Zion and God's covenant with that city. He said, though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken, nor my, nor my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. So back to the question, where is the dwelling place of God? It's with his people. It's with his people. It's okay to say amen. But what about you and I? How is it that God is a very present help? God doesn't, does God know about our circumstances? Does he know what we're dealing with? This idea of God being a very present help and dwelling with his people is not a one-way street. I want to go to Deuteronomy 33, verse 27a, and it says this, the eternal God is a dwelling place, and underneath are the everlasting arms. So God dwells with us, but we also must dwell in him. The word dwell means to continually abide, continually abide. 1 John 2.28 says, now now little, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, and I just lost my place, I'll read it right off there. So that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. 1 John uh, 2.6. So how do we know that we are dwelling or abiding in God? How do we know that? We know that God's with us, right? But how do we know that we're with him? How do we know that we're abiding in him? 1 John 2, 6 says, The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Talking about Jesus. The dwelling place of God's got to be holy. 1 John 3, 24. The one who keeps his commandments abides in him and he, Jesus, in him in the guy that keeps his commandments. That's where Jesus is going to abide. We know by this that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. John, that's another work of the Spirit. Verse 6, the nations made an uproar. The kingdoms tottered. He raised his voice. The earth melted. Now, we're going to go back to the, to the battle that we talked about that prompted the sons of Korah, to write this beautiful psalm. So you can find that story's in 2 Chronicles chapter, chapter 20. So to set the background again, the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Edomites came to attack Jehoshaphat and the people of Judah. King Jeho- Jehoshaphat was a godly man. When he heard that the armies of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, and all the otherites were coming to attack the people of Judah. The scripture says 
that Jehoshaphat was afraid. Now, I think so. These, this, this was a massive army. This wasn't just a few people. This was a massive army. And he turned his attention. Now, here's what he did when he was afraid. He turned his attention to seek the Lord. He proclaimed a period of fasting throughout all of Judah. All the cities of, of Judah gathered to seek the Lord. Wouldn't that be great for us to do in our, in our nation today? They must have known that God is a very present help in a time of trouble. Jehoshaphat prayed a prayer to God that, to me, is the epitome of being in a time of trouble. Listen to some of the words of that prayer found in 2 Chronicles 20, starting at verse 6. And he said, O Lord, the God of our, of our fathers, are you not God in the heavens? And are you not ruler of all over all the kingdoms of the nations? Power and might are in your hand so that no one can stand against you. Did you not, O our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it to the descendants of Abraham, your friend, forever? They have lived in it and have built you a sanctuary there for your name, saying, should evil come upon us, the sword, judgment, pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house and cry to you in our distress, and you will hear us and deliver us. After telling God of the impending attack, Jehoshaphat ends the prayer by saying in verse number 12, O our God, will you not judge them? For we are powerless before this great multitude that is coming against us. Nor do we know what to do, but our eyes are on you. That's a pretty good example when things are looking really rough, that's a pretty good example of, of what to do in times when he, he was very honest. God, we don't know what to do, but we're looking to you. Our eyes are on you. Then something really, really interesting happens. There was a prophet there. His name was Jehaziel. He stood up and told all of the people that had gathered, and God prompted him at the, just the right time, very present help. He was right there. He told all of those who had gathered and said, in verse number 15, listen, all Judah and the inhabitants of, of Jerusalem and King Jeho Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, do not fear or be dismayed because of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours but God's. Jump down to verse 17. You need not fight this battle. Station yourselves and stand and see the salva salvation of the Lord on your behalf. O Judah and Jerusalem, do not fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow, go out to face them, for the Lord is with you. When they heard what God had told the prophet, guess what they did? They questioned the prophet and said, how, how is that right? Who are you, Jeh Jehaziel? Do you speak for God? No, they didn't do any of that. The scripture tells us that Jehoshaphat and all Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down on the ground and started worshiping the Lord. Verse 19 of that chapter says this, the Levites, now God hadn't sent them any help yet. 
They fell down and started worshiping God before, and the army was still on its way. Verse 19 of that, of that chapter, the Levites from the sons of the Kohathites and from the sons of the Korahites, the sons of Korah that wrote this psalm, were some of the guys that were there, stood up to praise the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. God hadn't sent any help yet. He hadn't sent them any help yet. The army's still on its way. Nothing about their circumstances had changed. The words of the, of the prophet didn't change that circumstance right then. But their resolve to trust God and believe what he has said through his prophet was stronger than their fear. They applied the logic of faith. They believed that God was a very present help. Do you believe that God is a very present help? The next day, the armies were still coming. They marched through the night. The next day, the armies came to attack, and the Scripture says that the Lord was the one who ambushed them. Do you remember? He said, you don't have to fight this battle. God's going to fight it. The Lord ambushed the armies, and they were struck down. When the people of, of Judah went up to the watchtower to see what was going on, all they saw were dead, were dead bodies on the ground. God was a present help, a very present help. And do you know that God pays no regard to the rage of nations? So where is God dwelling? I want to read the next, and, and don't miss this. The first ones to stand up and praise the Lord in that when all this was going down were the sons of Korah. Let's read the next five verses of this psalm keeping in mind what we've just learned, you're, you're going to get a, a deeper understanding of these men and their heart that wrote this psalm. Verse number seven, the Lord of hosts is with, thee, is with us. Where is he? He's with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Come, behold the works of the Lord who has wrought desolations in the earth. He makes the wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariots with fire. Cease striving. Some translations say, be still. Cease striving and know that I am God. So how do we respond when life is uncertain? How do we respond when the army is coming? And all we have, all we have is what God says. Well, here's how you respond. We stop. We become still. We cease striving. We pray. We ask God for help. We remember that He is God and we are not. We trust Him to be our, our mighty fortress and to bring us new mercies and to work His power on our behalf. We remember that our God is a present help, a very present help. He dwells with his people, and we have to dwell in him. 
part of dwelling in Him is believing what He says, doing what He says to do. That's part of dwelling in God. Do you remember what John said? Those that abide in Him and do what He says. We remember that He's God and He is enough. And then we ask Him for help to trust Him even more through the uncertainty. The uncertain days are going to come. We've lived through some recently. Uncertain days are, are going to come. We ask him to give us more of himself, and then we believe that he does it. Verse 10, I will be exalted among the, among the nations. I will be exalted in, in the earth. Did you know that God's purpose is his glory? God promises that he's going to glorify his name in all the earth. He promises that. But do you know that we have a part to play in all of that? Do we have, that we have a part to play if God is, is glorified? 1 Peter 4, 10 and 11 tells us this. It says, as each one has received a special gift. Employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. That glorifies God. That glorifies God. Verse number 11, whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength that God supplies. So that in some things, no, in all things. So that in the things I believe God in, no, in all things. So that in all things, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. We have a part to play in glorifying God. The Lord of hosts is with us. I said, the Lord of hosts is with us. Thank you. <laughs> the God of Jacob is our stronghold. It was the God of Jacob who fulfilled his promise to bring Jacob's extended family out of Egypt after 400 years of slavery. It was the God of Jacob who cared for them in, in the wilderness. It was the God of Jacob who preserved them until Jesus Christ, the ultimate son of Jacob, came to the earth. It is this God of, of Jacob who was willing to give his son as the only sacrifice for sin. It's the God of Jacob that's a very present help. The Lord of hosts is with us. I think that unless we look to God and, and seriously consider all of the things that God says, that when the uncertain days come, we will not do what these men did. I think that we have to trust in God, uh, a, a present help, a very present help in, in time of need. I think we have a part to play in God being glorified on this earth. We have a part to play in it. 
We're his people. Let's pray. Father, we believe that you are with us. We believe, Lord, that you are a very present help. Now, Lord, we ask you, help us to dwell in you. Help us to follow your word. Help us to live like we're those people of God. Help us to glorify you in all things, not just here on Sunday, Lord. Help us to proclaim your goodness to a world that's in desperate need. Help us to be your people in this world. Lord, we ask you, guide us, direct us, show us your way. Help us to be more like you. Help us to live a life that is pleasing to you. 